Good morning. Welcome to St. Timothy's. Glad you joined us today. I'm Pastor Dan. Let's begin in prayer, shall we? Lord, thank you that we can listen to your word today, that we can worship you, that we can sing songs of praise, and we do ask you to fill our hearts, Lord, with, with joy and thanksgiving this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we continue looking at the seven churches in Revelation today and what Jesus said to them, looking for what he is saying to us through them. And last week, uh, I made a mistake saying that the church in Smyrna was the only church that Jesus didn't rebuke and tell to repent. There was one other church, but that's not the church that we are covering today. We'll get to that um, soon. Today, we're looking at what Jesus said to the church in Pergamos. Jesus said to his servant, John, in chapter 2, verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write these things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Again, with each of these churches, Jesus begins his message with a specific self-revelation that is re relevant to his message to them. With the last church, Smyrna, it was his resurrected life, and he ended his message assuring the church that he will crown them with life as they are faithful to him until death. For this church, Pergamos, Jesus' self-revelation is his sharp two-edged sword as seen by John in the vision that he described of Jesus in chapter 1. Why the two-edged sword? Well, if you remember, that sword was proceeding from Jesus' mouth in John's vision, and Jesus is not pleased with everyone in this church, and a rebuke is on its way from Jesus' mouth. But Jesus starts out again commending the good in this church first. He says this in verse 13, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Pergamos was the capital of the region of the seven cities that the seven churches were in. It was the seat of authority and also the seat of emperor worship for that region. It was there in that city where incense was offered before a statue of the Roman emperor as God, as to God. And a Christian's refusal to bow and worship the emperor often meant death for them. Jesus went on, and you hold fast to my name and did not de deny my faith even in the days which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So the church had remained faithful even when their Christian brother was martyred uh, for his faith. That was commendable. Jews were the only people that had somehow worked out an exemption from emperor worship early on. Christians who were not Jews in Pergamos had been faithful to Jesus despite the risk of being accused of not worshiping Caesar. 
The Christians were not ashamed to be called Jesus' followers, even in the face of an evil government that was against them. That was a characteristic of the church from the very beginning, of the Christian church from the beginning, to stand up for Christ and the gospel, even when threatened by authorities. This church, like Smyrna before, is not a church that overly resembles our church today. Thank God, the civil authorities in general in Canada have never been against the church per se. The exception perhaps being some that persecuted Protestant evangelicals in Quebec in the 40s and 50s and perhaps even early 60s. If you ever have a chance, read the book Footprints Across Quebec, the autobiography of Pastor Murray Heron. It's eye-opening in that regard. Of course, we are now alarmed by Quebec's Bill 21, but the federal government for most of Canada's history was not anti-church or anti-Christ or anti-Bible. Unfortunately, that is changing. Despite the fact that the preamble of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms begins with, whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law, the government is beginning to act as though that is that no longer the case. Some actions over the past few years and the recent passing of Bill C-4 by the federal government shows that. Back on January 16th of this year, many evangelical pastors in Canada preached on the biblical view of sexuality to protest, protest our government's passing of Bill C-4, which goes against what the Bible says about sexuality. Our church was closed that day due, due to the Omicron outbreak, and Deacon Allen was preaching the recorded message, so I didn't want to ask him to change his message when I heard what was happening that day, but I did approve Chuck's request to have Bob email a link um, of Pastor Joshua's message to Lakeside Heights Baptist Church that day on the same subject. Bob sent that link out on January 19th, and I'd encourage everyone to view it if you have not done so yet. What is Bill C-4? Bill C-4 is about what is called conversion therapy, and it shows very clearly that the government of Canada is against the message of the Bible. Conversion therapy, in the government's definition, means a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, uh, that is the gender assigned at the birth by a healthcare professional responsible for that, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. But it is not limited to that. It also includes things that may repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, 
repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. The bill says, and I quote, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to the persons who are subjected to it, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society because among other things, it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth are preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. Um, and goes on saying, everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo that is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment. Well, what is this so-called myth that might be harmfully propagated? Well, we read it today from Genesis 1. It is that God created humankind, male and female, that God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And that God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very good. If I were to preach today that God created us male and female, and that that was very good, in fact, that was to be preferred over trying to change what God created you as, if I were to teach that to a person who wanted to change their gender, I could be accused of repress, repressing them and be guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment here in Canada. Well, I'm not preaching that today, but I am preaching that we Christians in Canada better get ready to suffer for our faith unless laws like that are overturned. What the Bible teaches, the current government of Canada deems a myth that is harmful to society. Therefore, those who preach it from now on to someone who is of another persuasion are now guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment. This begs the question, what else might, might our government soon deem harmful to Canadian society that we are teaching? And will standing up for the lives of unborn children perhaps be a criminal offense very soon as well? It's not an indictable offense yet, but I saw that the government deemed that harmful as well as I filled out the forms for a summer student worker for this church one year. We have had summer student helpers uh, helping us with uh, VBS and various things over the years, and we received some government funding for that. But some people in government didn't like that organizations who were against abortion were receiving government funds for student workers. So the government put a clause 
in the application, making the organization's official sign that they would not actively work to undermine a woman's access to sexual and reproductive rights as well as other things. Think about that statement, if you will, for a while. Because somehow the government has failed to understand that killing unborn babies has nothing to do with a woman's sexual and reproduct reproductive rights. Killing unborn babies is the exact opposite of reproduction. Saving them has everything to do with the right to life and liberty for every human being. Well, what happens when our government deems what the Bible and the church stand for as harmful to other Canadians? We may soon find out. What must we do then? Well, the church must speak out precisely because the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms still begins with those words, whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. The federal and provincial governments are getting all too used to overstepping their bounds. They are beginning to think that they are above God and above his word and above his church. They are not. Even as individual believers, we are Christians first under God and Canadians only after that. Now I know it's not directly related, but today the government of Quebec is demanding that churches in Quebec require vaccine passports for people to enter. And I'm doing my very best to obey what the Bible says in Romans 13.1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. But the problem is the church is not a soul or person. The church is made up of many souls or people under Christ as head. Another problem I have is that my Bible also says brothers and sisters do not show prejudice if you possess faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. But if you fulfill the royal law as expressed in this scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show prejudice, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as violators. From James 2, 1 and James 2, 8 through 9. Well, today my daughter Alia and some other parishioners who would like to be here are not here because they are not allowed not having a vaccine passport. And I was curious, so I looked it up and found that the World Health Organization has not even approved the vaccine for use in children. And the countries that have, like Canada, have given only emergency use author authorization for the mRNA vaccines for use in Alia's 
adolescent age group because of the pandemic. So I ask, is it right for our church to go ahead and demand vaccine passports because our secular government has told us we must? Well, they don't even demand them for schools. And if it is right for us to do so, then where do we draw the line? Where do we draw the line with a government that has proven that it is against the church? Do I stop preaching on Genesis 1 and Romans 1 because the government deems that harmful? And there are other issues as well. What if the government ends up being wrong with regard to our kids in the long term? Who would be held responsible? What if someone like Alia gave in only because she wants to go to church and ended up suffering one of those rare but debilitating adverse effects? Would we not be partially to blame? What if an individual thought they heard the Holy Spirit warn them personally not to take the vaccine for whatever reason? Who are we to say they heard wrong and keep them from the Lord's table? If Quebec wants the church to stay out of the secular institutions, then they should stay out of the church. Unfortunately, as the church, we must begin to consider and wrestle with th these things now because the church now exists in a post-Christendom society. And this issue is dividing the church right now. Some Christians are saying, if the non-vaxxers truly loved others like Christ says, they would get the jab. Other Christians are saying, if the vaxxers truly loved like Jesus does, they would allow us in the church. In fact, they hate us. As Christians, we cannot go there. We cannot judge the other's heart like that. Nor should we keep the churches closed for the sake of peace between Christians. All of this is happening because the church is showing signs, signs that it is under the secular government. But there's a problem with that. When the governments are not under God. Harder times are coming for the church in Canada. That is very evident. Well, back to our text. Jesus said to the church in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 2, But I have a few things against you. You see, just like the church of Ephesus, this church was also far from perfect. He said, I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Well, what was the doctrine of Balaam? 
We looked at the story of Balaam very briefly a few weeks ago in one of my epiphany sermons. He was the diviner who King Balak of Moab sent for to curse the Israelites as they were on their exodus journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. Well, he found that he could not curse the Israelites because of God's blessing upon them. So instead, he corruptly advised Balak to tempt the Israelites to sin instead. He did so knowing that their sinning would remove God's blessing from them, even bring a plague of God's judgment upon them, which happened. If we look at Balaam's life, we can see that he was, he had been indeed a, a very blessed man. He was blessed by God at first. He heard from and spoke for God. He had been respected as one whom whoever he blessed was blessed and whomever he cursed was cursed. But Balaam had a problem. He was after two things more than God. He was after the honor of men and after money. He went for those two things as much as God would allow him to and was very careful not to step over that line at first. But the problem was that the line eventually got obscured by Balaam's greed and he compromised and he crossed the line causing by causing Israel to sin for his own honor and his own profit. Causing others to sin seems to be the sin of Balaam, and his sin eventually cost him. He was put to death by Israel. Scripture tells us these things about Balaam. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. He ran greedily after profit, and he taught others to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. It seems that his doctrine was that it was okay to cause others to sin. A big issue for the New Testament church was eating things sacrificed to idols in pagan temples. Apparently food from such places was more reasonable because it came from people donating it as sacrifice. And some Christians went there to get their food and even ate there. And other Christians regarded that as sin because it was related to and even supported idolatry. There were some Christians coercing other Christians to go against their consciences and join them. And those who got them to do so against their consciences caused them to sin because as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 14, 23, Whatever is not from faith is sin. Well, how might we use this example today? How might we cause 
other Christians to sin. Some simple examples might be our indulging in or participation in what might be a vice for someone else. Some other more subtle examples might be provoking someone to anger, pushing certain buttons at opportune times in order to make them look bad in front of others, perhaps. It could also be coercing someone to support you in your argument or animosity against another person without them knowing both sides of the story. It could be anything like that. And it could also be doing things that are not sinful for us because of our consciences and showing contempt for those whom the same thing would be sin for because of their consciences. Well, Jesus went on in verse 15 of chapter 2, speaking to the church of Pergamos, saying, Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which, which thing I hate. What was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans that Jesus hates. Well, we don't know for sure, but we have a pretty good idea that it was antinomianism, the heresy which presumes on God's grace. And I studied various heresies in, in seminary, and I could probably go into detail uh, from my notes, but I'll simply give you what Wikipedia's uh, version is for time's sake. It says it's any view which rejects laws or legalism and argues against moral, religious, and social norms or mores. An antinomian could be one who takes the principle of salvation by faith and divine grace to the point of asserting that the saved are not bound to follow the moral law contained in the Ten Commandments. Well, interestingly enough, this doctrine seems to have sprung from uh, some teacher's twisting of the Apostle Paul's teaching on the law of the spirit of life in Christ above, above the legalistic approach of the Pharisees. Well, Paul was accused of, of that heresy, but it was not what he, he preached, and he defended himself well against it in Romans 6. Jesus said, and continues to say to those who hold those views and those who cause others to sin, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Well, it's also interesting that Jesus told the whole church to repent of the sin of a minority. Now, no one wants the glorified Jesus to come and fight against them with the sword of his mouth. We can see what, what an example of that might be like on an individual in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Jesus can clean his church quickly when he wants to, but he chooses to warn them instead. 
Jesus goes on in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So what are they to overcome? What are we to overcome? We are to overcome compromise. Jesus is saying, be ready. Be ready to even die for your faith. It's worth it. Well, what else are they to overcome? They are to overcome presuming on God's grace. We must be thankful and always remember the cost of that grace. Always remember what it cost God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What else? They are to overcome causing others to sin, the sin of causing others to sin. And we too must be, be beware of all of those things and repent of them when we find them inside ourselves. Well, to complete this church, does this church in Pergamos represent our church? Well, the government is cer certainly beginning to turn against the church, but they're certainly not against the church to the point that they were against the church in Pergamos, even enforcing emperor worship. Do we have some in our community who compromise and presume on God's grace? Well, I think every church does, and every one of us has at some point in our Christian walk done that. We must always beware of taking Jesus' grace expressed in his sacrifice for granted. What else? Do we as a church cause others to sin? We may if we close the door of our church to some while leaving it open to others. We must be very careful, especially now, not to despise others because of some liberty that we or they enjoy. The best way to ensure that is to not dispute over uncertain things and not show contempt for our brothers and sisters who hold different views over non-essential things and non-essential doctrines. Read Romans 14 concerning that and, and judge your own heart. What do the rewards that Jesus offers signify? Well, the hidden manna from heaven is none other than Jesus himself and his word. Jesus himself is our sustainer. And the white stone with the new name given by God himself, well, that is very special. Matthew Henry says, this white stone is absolution from the guilt of sin, alluding to the ancient custom 
of giving a white stone to those acquitted on trial and a black stone to those condemned. The new name is a name of adoption. That is adoption into God's family. And none can read the evidence of a man's adoption except himself. Let's pray. Oh Lord, in such a trying time in our short history, Lord, we, we come to you and we ask you for help. We ask you to help bind us together in your love as your church. We ask you to help us to stand up, Lord, um, for your gospel, even when our government is against us. And we ask you to help us to pray, to pray for our government, for pray, to pray for those around us, to pray for all the people, to banish fear from our society. And Lord, and we pray that you will humble us, Lord, that we will all be, be humbled by, by this great calamity and bow our knee to you and ask you to help us out of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.